Well, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. We're continuing our study in the book of Mark. Last week we looked at the triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus rode in triumphantly into Jerusalem. Uh, He rides in not to rule, but to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And he sticks his head in the temple there at the end of the passage that we looked at last week. And he's going to return to the temple today, as we will see here in just a moment, as we read verse 12 through 25. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses." Well, this is the last miracle that Mark records for us in his gospel. And it is Jesus' only destructive miracle. We might say that when Jesus casts the legion of demons out of the the man, the Gerasenes, those demons were uh, were cast into a herd of pigs and they went over the, the, the mountainside into the water and were destroyed. But the overall result was that this man was freed from being possessed by many demons. This miracle we have here of the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus' last miracle, is only destructive in its nature. And it's telling us something. Now, sometimes you read accounts in Scripture and the meaning is very plain and clear. And it's obvious upon the initial reading. Uh, Last week, I really enjoyed studying and preparing the sermon for that, uh, studying the passage for that sermon, uh, because it seemed clear to me what needed to be said, Uh, and it was uh, quite a joy, and early in the week, I had all my outline ready and just needed to fill it out. Well, this passage before us today is not one of those passages that seem very clear on first reading. The initial reading probably raised more questions for you than answers. 
and still other questions arise as we continue to reflect on this text before us today. Namely, questions like, why in the world did Jesus curse this poor fig tree for not having fruit? Especially when Mark tells us that it wasn't even the season for figs to be there. Or uh, the question, why does Jesus drive out the merchants from the temple? Why does he do that? These men were there to provide sacrifices for people who traveled from a distance. They would have been in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple area. And they, you, know, you can't bring a sacrifice from afar, and you would go and you would buy it. And, of course, they had foreign money, and so there had to be money changers to, to exchange the money so that they could purchase the sacrifices that needed to be made. They were providing a service there in the temple. Or this one, why does Mark sandwich the account of the temple cleansing between the episode of the fig tree? Why didn't he finish telling us about the fig tree uh, when he starts talking about the fig tree? But no, he goes off and tells us about the temple and then comes back to the fig tree and the lessons drawn from that. How does Jesus' teaching on prayer there at the end explain the cursing of the fig tree? When Peter inquires about it, he sees the fig tree there and, and then Jesus starts talking about prayer. How does that fit together? That doesn't seem apparent as you read it. Well, I've got three things that I think Jesus is trying to communicate to us today in the passage. And they're warnings. We have three warnings that I have discovered in this passage. The first warning is this. Beware of fruitlessness in your walk. Secondly, beware of falseness in your religion. And finally, thirdly, beware of faithlessness in your heart. Let's look at these in turn. First of all, beware of fruitlessness in your walk. And why does Jesus curse this poor fig tree? Well, when you look back at the Old Testament, prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, sometimes, you know, they sometimes they spoke uh, the Word of God. That's what a prophet was, a mouthpiece for God. God would give them messages to communicate to His people, and these men would, would speak those messages. He would go and tell them what God had said. Sometimes, though, they acted out their prophecies. They did things and physically demonstrated something or acted out something to show what God was saying to the people. For example, in Jeremiah 19... God instructs Jeremiah to purchase a pottery flask. And he does so. And then he tells him to go and call the elders and chief priests to himself. And, uh, and then this is what he says to tell them. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Well, first of all, he tells them, I want you to, in front of them, take the pottery flask and smash it on the ground. And then say, thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Now God goes on to say all the reasons that he has for, treat, for treating his people in such a manner. They had rejected him and so on. But it was an object lesson. I think what Jesus is doing here in the cursing of the fig tree and driving the money changers and the and the, selling, the, the people selling the sacrifices out of the temple, they are both symbolic acts. They're both object lessons. The fig tree and the driving the people out of the temple, they're visual aids for us. They represent something else. And when we see Jesus, he never does anything that doesn't have a teaching aspect to it. 
Uh, he's always teaching. It's not a fit of temper that he has. You know, he's hungry. He goes to the fig tree, sees it as no fruit there, and he just says, well, curse you, fig tree. He just gets ticked off and, and curses the fig tree. That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's a, it's a teaching moment. When you see Jesus so calm and peaceful in other times when people are trying to kill him and, and uh, people pursuing him for his life, he's always calm. Uh, he, he doesn't get have fits of temper. So that's not consistent to say that he would have a fit of temper. No, uh, this is true, a true symbolic act to make a point. Now, I'm sure that the merchants that Jesus drove out of the temple were probably back in there doing the same thing, maybe even the next day. Surely the next week, because Jesus was not around the next week, or at least he was around, but he had risen from the dead by that time. But anyway, it's a symbolic act. Now, what is it symbolizing? It's a metaphor, both the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, they're both metaphors for anyone claiming to be God's people who do not bear fruit for him. It's a warning to us to beware of fruitlessness in your walk with the Lord. Now, what is fruit? When we say we bear fruit, what does that mean? Well, we did a little word study on the word fruit in the Bible, and, it, and it's used for many things. God is very concerned that his people bear fruit. In Galatians 5:22, we have the fruit of the Spirit. So uh, what's described there is an inward character change. So when, when you become a believer, there should be a character change. Your life should be marked by increasing levels of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These characteristics should be growing in your life. That's one of the fruit that should be produced. When John the Baptist started uh, preaching, he said, uh, you know, bear the fruit of repentance. And he goes on and talks about good deeds. And the Apostle Paul talks about the fruit of good deeds. He takes up a collection at the end of Romans. And he says he wants to deliver this fruit to the people to whom it was raised for. And in Ephesians, Paul talks about the fruit of light being justice, righteousness, uh, truth. So doing good to others in many different forms, that's another form of fruit. So we've got an inward character change, outward good actions of love and care for other people. And then in the book of Hebrews, we have a third kind of fruit, and that is worship from the heart. Hebrews 13:15 talks about praise being the fruit of the lips. So that which is uh, in our hearts is coming out in our worship and our praising God. These are all examples of the fruit that Christians are to produce. We are to be uh, worshiping God. We are to be doing good things. We are to have an inward character change. This cursing of the fig tree uh, goes along with what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. Jesus said there, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So he's very, very interested in us bearing fruit. And if we do not bear fruit, we prove that we are not his disciples. Just as this fig tree. It looked good. It was in leaf. Uh, It looked like a good fig tree, but it had not borne fruit. Therefore, it is cursed and it dies. Now, the question we're... we're begged to ask now is why does Jesus blame this poor fig tree when Mark clearly tells us that it wasn't the season for figs? And why would Jesus expect to have figs on a fig tree when it wasn't the season for figs? Now my grandparents had a fig tree in their front yard, and and I remember as a child that thing would be loaded with figs at a certain time of the year, and my grandmother would and grandfather would pick the figs and they would make fig preserves. And man, I wish that I had her back to make me some fig preserves and a sweet potato pie because she could make those really well also. But I always turn my nose up at the fig preserves. I would love to have some fig preserves now from my grandmother from that tree that was in her front yard in Gauchet. But, uh, you know, that tree, it wasn't the right time for figs. So how could Jesus blame it? For not doing that. Well, if you look at verse 13, it gives us a little clue. It actually gives us a little detail twice. And it says this, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So that little detail that was mentioned twice is that this thing was full of leaves. It looked good. It looked like it would have figs. Now, in Palestine, during a certain time of the year, uh, a set of little nubs would appear on the tree, and uh, these nubs would spring from the previous seasons where the figs were picked. And they were about almond size, and they were edible. And so travelers sometimes going along would eat them off the trees. Now, when Jesus comes to this tree, he sees that its leaves were there, And so uh, even though it wasn't the time for figs, he's expecting to find those little buds there that you can eat. And since nothing was edible there, uh, it tells Jesus that this tree is not going to bear fruit even when it's time to bear fruit. So Jesus sees a tree that looks good. It has all the trappings of being a normal fig tree, a normal healthy uh, fig producing tree, but it's not. The cleansing of the temple is also a symbolic act saying the same thing. The sacrificial system is a fruitless tree. This religion that's being carried on here is fruitless. It's not going to do good for anyone, including the Gentiles. You'll notice that he's in the court of the Gentiles. and We read Isaiah 56 about how God is going to open it up for the Gentiles, for all peoples, from every tongue and tribe and nation. And when we read Jeremiah chapter 7, it says some of these same things about the temple that that it has became uh, an empty religion. Here's what it says. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And that's why Jesus says this place has become a den of robbers. These people were coming. Uh, They said, oh, we've got the temple of the Lord here. We're in good shape, even though their hearts were far from it. And they they were doing all kinds of wickedness. They were even worshiping other gods. They had all the religious trappings. They were a a nice looking tree, but they had no fruit whatsoever. And therefore, they're going to be cut off. Now, if you look at the... This, this passage in its context, I believe 11, 12, and 13 form a unit. We have here in chapter 11, Jesus riding in Jerusalem, going to the temple. We have a fig tree. We have the fig tree uh, that we just read, and then we have the cleansing of the temple. When you get to the end of chapter 13, he'll once again refer to the fig tree in a different context, and he will, he will uh, predict the destruction of the temple. So it's kind of set off in both sides. And in between that, in chapter 12 and some of 11 and 13, it tells us how to be a fruitful disciple of Jesus in several different episodes. But this destruction of the temple, it's going to, it's going to go down because it is a fruitless tree. Because Jesus makes it obsolete. He is actually the true temple. You'll notice that most religions of the world... Practically all religions of the world have some holy place, some temple, whether it be in Jerusalem or Mecca or some shrine or temple along the street, like when uh, uh, the Bowdens went to uh, India and there were these temples everywhere that people worship, they're Hindu gods. Christianity has no temple. Why is that? It's because Jesus Christ is our temple. He made the temple in Jerusalem obsolete. You'll notice when he died, the curtain of the temple is torn. The, the very epicenter of the temple where the Holy of Holies, that's where the Day of Atonement happened, where, where the blood of the sacrifice was, was uh, sprinkled on the horns of the altar at the mercy seat, and the sins of his people were forgiven. The only person who was allowed to go in there was the high priest once a year to make this sacrifice for the people of God. No one could go in there but him. And, and you had the Holy of Holies in the center, and then courts. You had the, the court of the people of Israel, the men of Israel, the court of women, the court of Gentiles on the outer ring. And you could only go so far if you fit one of these, these groups. But once Jesus died, it tells us that the, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Everybody could see. Everybody could walk right into the Holy of Holies because Jesus made that temple obsolete. He made the way into the very presence of God. 
He made the way that, that sinners could be cleansed and could have a relationship with God. Not to have a fruitless religion that was just a, a matter of, of going through the motions, but to actually know God, to have a relationship with Him, to meet with Him, to, 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 to grow in your understanding of who He is and what He's done for you. Jesus is our temple. In Revelation 21, John has the vision uh, of the new Jerusalem, and it tells us there, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, what does this have to do with us today? Well, obviously, Jesus dying for us has everything to do for us. But, you know, we come to church, we have all the trappings of Christianity, but are we bearing fruit? Or is it just a religion to us? Is it just something that we do week to week? Is our life marked by a character change inside, increasing love, joy, peace, and so forth? Uh, Do we engage in good deeds for our fellow man and for the church? And do we give God the fruit of our worship? Do we praise Him? Not just on Sunday morning, but all the time in our lives. Are we giving our worship to Him? Jesus in Matthew 7 has this, this passage. It's the scariest passage in Scripture. It's frightening. He says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When someone says, Lord, Lord, in Scripture, or says uh, a personal name twice, it's a term of endearment. It's, it's showing personal knowledge. David cries it out when his son Absalom is, is, is killed. Absalom rebels against him, but still David loves him. And he says, when, when he hears the news that Absalom has been killed, he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. He loved him dearly, even though he had, he had become a bad person and rebelled against him. And here these people are saying, Lord, Lord. You know, they're calling him Lord and they're meaning it. We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did all these mighty works in your name. And he says, I never knew you. And then he says, you know, the, the one who hears the words of mine and does them, he is the wise man, the one who really does produce fruit in his life, character change, good deeds for others, worship. These are the things that God's looking for. So it's a scary passage that we have before, before us, not only in Matthew, but in Mark as well. As we see this tree cut off, wilted to the roots because it bore no fruit. Do we bear fruit in our lives? And that brings me to the third, beware. And this one hopefully will be an encouragement to you, uh, not just a warning. Beware of faithlessness in your heart. It says there in verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, 
the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what Peter was feeling when he said that, but when you hear Jesus' response, he says, have faith in God, and he starts talking about prayer. Uh, I wonder if Peter, like us, as we reflect on these things, is worried. Uh, he sees the judgment coming down from, from God. And he's worried that victory is withered. It's withered to its very roots. And Jesus answers them in a comforting way. He tells them the, the best advice he could give them. Have faith in God. I told you a couple of weeks ago, uh, the amount of faith is not so important. It's the object of, of your faith that's most important. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look to God. God is powerful. You know, in the context of this judgment, uh, where you think, oh, my goodness, how am I going to survive it? He's saying, look to God. With God, all things are possible, Mark told us a few weeks ago. God can do it. God can save to the uttermost. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now when you read that, and you take it out of its context, that promise sounds like, well... Whatever you ask in prayer, if you just psychologically believe that you're going to receive it, if you just eliminate all doubts in your mind, then you will certainly receive it. I've tried that with a sports car, and it just doesn't work. Um, I'm certain that God has the power to give me a sports car. Uh, And I don't think my faith is lacking at all, but here I am driving an old beat-up Suburban. I don't know what God is doing there. Well, you can take it out of context. It does not mean that. It's not our uh, psychological certainty that makes our prayers uh, answered. Uh, What it's saying here, you have to put it in context, is that God is great. He's powerful enough to do anything. He can do anything. Anything that he says that he, he can do, he can do it. But when we have faith in God, not only are we having faith in his power to do it, we're also having his faith in his wisdom to whether he will do it or not. So you can't have one and not the other. You have to say, Lord, hey, I would love a sports car, but God is saying to me, you know, in my wisdom, I'm not going to give you a sports car. Uh, I'm going to give you a Suburban. And, or whatever that prayer might be for us. And when, when we look at what Peter is saying and what Jesus is saying to the disciples, he's saying, look, have trust in God. Yes, judgment is coming, but God is powerful enough to deliver you and to save you through me, uh, he can do it. And we don't need to doubt about that at all or be worried about it if, if we're putting our lives in his hand, entrusting ourselves to him, entrusting ourselves not only to his power, but his wisdom. Yes, you're going to go through difficult times. You're going to suffer for my sake, but I am going to complete the work that I've begun in you. I am going to produce fruit in your life if you just trust in me, abide in me, listen to me, And do what I say. So beware of faithlessness in your heart. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said this, Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who heard the word, and it accepted it, and it bore fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. May the Lord make that so in our lives, 
that we would hear the word of God, accept it, and that it would bear fruit in our lives. Now, as I began, I told you that this is Jesus' last miracle and his only destructive miracle. Now, put that in the context of all of Jesus' ministry. Every other miracle he did was constructive. It was for the benefit of blind people and lame people and deaf people and for the disciples who were uh, beginning to understand who he was and his power. One destructive miracle. John tells us that if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, that all the books in the world wouldn't contain it. All the good things that he did. He is a God of mercy. But there is a day when judgment will come, and it will be too late. And that's what this is saying. And I think that's what Jesus is saying with his life. He's providing mercy. He's reaching out. He's loving us. And there's, there's so much mercy to us. But if we refuse that mercy, uh, if we reject his word, then there is no hope. We're fruitless trees. And it, ultimately, we will be cursed. And it's our own doing if we reject so great a salvation the writer of Hebrew tells us about. I hope you consider these things. Consider your own life. Consider what fruit you're producing in your life and have faith in God. Turn to God. Put your trust in Him and the way of salvation that He's provided in the Lord Jesus Christ, this God of mercy. Let's pray together.